Santa Claus asked me to wrap this episode just for you. Motley Fool Money starts now. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money radio show. I'm Chris Hill. On behalf of everyone at the Motley Fool, I hope you're enjoying this Christmas weekend. It is the season of giving, so we are taking a break from the stock market and sharing the gift of two of my favorite interviews from 2022. Later in the show, my conversation with Mark Cuban, billionaire owner of the Dallas Mavericks, one of the sharks on Shark Tank. And on top of that, he's got a new online pharmacy business called costplusdrugs.com. That's later in the show, but up first, a conversation with Becky Quick, longtime co-host of CNBC's flagship morning show, Squawk Box. Now, if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that Becky has been a guest on Motley Fool Money for the past 10 years. But this conversation was the first time we were talking in person, face-to-face. I went to New York City to meet up with her. She had just completed three hours of live TV and met me in a conference room just off the set of Squawk Box. And like the consummate pro she is, Becky got herself a cup of coffee, sat across the table from me, and we just started talking. I asked about her start at the Wall Street Journal, her move to CNBC, and how she first got to know Warren Buffett. Becky was born in Indiana, the oldest of four kids. Her dad was a geologist and geophysicist, and his work took the family from Indiana to Ohio, Texas, Oklahoma, and eventually New Jersey. She was the editor of her high school newspaper, and her interest in media stayed with her when she went to Rutgers University. At the urging of her mother, she joined the staff of the school newspaper and ended up writing for it all four years of college. Not long after she graduated, she ended up in an entry-level job at the Wall Street Journal, and she credits her boss, Karen Miller Pensero, with encouraging and pushing her in those early days at the Journal. It was then that Becky was given what turned out to be one of her first big assignments in business journalism. So you're at the Journal in the mid-90s when the internet basically is born and starts to become an actual thing. Is it safe to assume that in part because of your age at the time, and by that I just mean that you were someone under the age of 30, that people looked at you and said, oh, well, she probably understands this. Because I can, I remember talking with older people at the time and they really struggled to understand what the internet was and why it was anything other than like just a computer toy. I didn't know that much about the internet. In fact, I got my first email address when I went to the journal, not in college. But yeah, being young and being low on the totem pole definitely helped. In fact, I helped launch WSJ.com because nobody else wanted to do it, right? It was like, wow. there were the junk jobs that like the serious journalists there weren't going to tackle. Uh, but this because, internet thing is a fad, give right, it to her. Right, give it to, like, give it to these like young kids who are coming in here just because we want nothing to do with it. And, and they were probably right, because at the time, like what we were doing was kind of monkey work. Um, I, I came over from the overseas copy desk, so they said, okay, you can be the international news editor for WSJ.com, which sounds great, but literally, we were like monkeys. We would take the, <laughs> <laughs> we would take the stories that the overseas editions were running, and we would recode it. I learned HTML, which is basically like 
the dumbest language of all time. You can code, anybody can learn it in about an hour and a half. You learn HTML and you're basically like recoding the stories that have already been edited and written and are finished products. And we were code monkeys turning it into an HTML story and trying to figure out how to make the hyperlinks work so that when they actually launched it that day with the reporters coming in, I remember like, telling the managing editor of Wall Street Journal Europe or something at that time, like, don't click on this button because the link doesn't work and you've got 100 reporters sitting in front of you. Like, don't click on these because we haven't figured out how to make this stuff work. <laughs> but yeah, it wasn't that I knew anything about the internet. It's just I was so not senior. <laughs> what brings you to CNBC? Well, CNBC and the Journal had a partnership, and you know I'd done a bunch of different jobs. After WSJ.com, I actually was a print reporter covering the internet because of my experience that I got as a monkey coder, and then I covered retail for the Journal, um, for the print journal, and then we had this partnership with CNBC, and um, they were just throwing reporters on air because they didn't really know who would be any good at it, who wanted to do it. And they would just say, okay, uh, CNBC called, they want you to go stand in the corner over there by the camera that they hooked up by in our office. By the logo, office. do a live hit. Yeah, just go do a live hit. And we all stunk. <laughs> like, imagine a bunch of print reporters and you just take and throw them in front of the camera. We all stunk. Um, none of us looked like TV reporters. I mean, at that point I wore jeans in the office every day. I had never worn liquid eyeliner. I didn't wash my hair every day. <laughs> you know, like you're there with your hair up in a clip and they say, go do it. And it's like, okay, maybe I can find some lipstick and try and do this. But I covered retail at that point and it was, it was the fall. And so retail was a big story for CNBC because you were in the heavy shopping season going through uh, the fall into the winter. They put me on a whole bunch and I guess somebody thought it was a good idea to put me on a little more. Um, and I think it was just because I was in the, the beat that again was getting so much play at that point, retail. So you get hired as a reporter first? You know, I, I wasn't sure that I'd want to go. So I, I said, we can try it out. They were going to send me over for six weeks. And I, I remember asking at the time, like, don't clean my desk out, save my job. Let's go see if this works because I might really stink at it. That it turned into about three months. And finally, they're like, okay, you got to make a decision because we can't keep your job open any longer. And I, I ended up staying. And um, that was 2001. I'm sure there are a lot of adjustments going from print to TV. Is there <laughs> so one vague. that stands out above others? I literally had one suit when I started working at CNBC, and they did not have a wardrobe department in those days. So it was like, holy cow. I went to Ann Taylor and bought a bunch of shirts um, that I could hopefully get away with and a few skirts to match it up with. I didn't make a lot of money at that point, so I was like, oh my gosh, how can I do this on my budget? And I remember in the early days, uh, Judy Chung, Carl Quintanilla's wife, was my producer for a while. Was trying to teach me the ropes of television, and I would go and work on my script. And I'd call everybody. You know, that was general assignment, so they had to assign me a story in the morning. I'd be working very diligently, typing up my script and calling sources till like five minutes before the hit. And I remember Judy yanking me out of my chair, being like, "You have to go into makeup. <laughs> you cannot just roll out." And I was so worried about my script and so not worried about that aspect of it. You have to remember, it's a visual medium. And it's not selling out as much as it's, you don't want to be a distraction. You don't want people to be focusing on you instead of what you're saying and what the story is. And that took a little adjustment. And that was different. <laughs> when do you go from your reporting on CNBC to your anchoring? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think I, was, I did general assignment for a while, then they made me the Wall Street Beat reporter, and that was in time for Dick Grosso with the New York Stock Exchange. And I remember I spent one summer kind of hanging out outside the New York Stock Exchange, standing on an Apple box, you know, with a hit every hour about what was the latest in the New York Stock Exchange with that. 
And then after that, sometime not too long after that, I'm, I'm messing up the years, uh, there was a show called Bullseye that launched. And that was a primetime show with Dylan Radigan. And uh, they would put me on the set with Dylan Radigan. And that started to be a, like an every night thing so that we could just go back and forth. He was the anchor, but I was sitting on the set with him through the whole show. And um, that's when they relaunched Squawk Box. And, or, no, then they decided I would be a reporter on the set of Squawk Box. That's what it was. And that was just before Squawk Box's 10th anniversary, because I remember celebrating that on the set with Mark Haynes. So I did that for about a year, and then they relaunched Squawk Box, and that's when it was uh, Joe Kernan and Carl Quintanilla and I. We talked about adjustments print to television. What's the adjustment like to hosting a live television show that starts at six in the morning? Mm, I guess the emphasis on six in the morning there. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, that was the other thing, because um, they... Squawk Box had been at 7 o'clock to that point. So I'd been doing the 7 a.m. shift for a while, but switching to 6 a.m. when you have to be up and in makeup and read in is a really different scenario. At that point, we were still in Inglewood Cliff, so I didn't have to get up quite as early as I do now because now I'm commuting into Times Square in Manhattan every day. And that was still pretty early. I think I was still getting up at about 4.15 then. And that was a huge adjustment for me because as a print reporter, I was coming into work. I was supposed to be there by 10, and there were a lot of days I wasn't there on time. And you weren't? Worried about your wardrobe, and some days you weren't washing your hair. Right, it's right. So it was, you know, it was a little bit of a of a mess. It was a. I I had been a night owl in college, where I'd be up all night because you know you're putting the paper to get to bed. Then it was a huge adjustment, but. Now I'm a complete morning person. At this point, I, I don't think well at night. I go to sleep early. My whole body's clock has changed as a result of doing this. But yeah, like going on and, and, and being a host at that point was funny too. I remember Joe Kernan and I would, would sit and look and laugh because you know instead of just being the kids on the side who are kind of like, hey, just chiming in from time to time with things, now we're supposed to be reading all of these things, like the intros and things. And there's definitely an anchor voice that you have to use. And when you're trying to develop that anchor voice, you feel like a complete moron. Like you just sound like an idiot. Joe and I would sit and laugh, and we would we still do this uh, sometimes. Like, okay, really try and sell this one coming up. And today on Squawk Box, you, know, you cannot oversell it. You sound like you're shouting. You sound like you're singing, and it still sounds better than when you're just reading normally on things. So, you, like, just imagine, like, re- pick up a newspaper today and, and read it out loud. You sound like an idiot when you try and sell it. So we, we definitely would giggle through, like, okay, now you try and sell this one. Let's see who sounds like a bigger jerk. And inevitably, the person who went overboard the most would sound the best. So there was that. Um, and, then, you know, the good thing is, is we just have fun on set. And that makes it a lot easier. Uh, then, you know, I never had any practice reading a teleprompter before they put me on live? Never. The first time I ever read a teleprompter was live on television. And I was terrible. And, and thankfully, CNBC was like experimenting at that point and nobody was paying much attention. But I literally tripped over the words to the point where I went, bleh, and I stuck out my tongue on air and said, start over and made them rewind the prompter. And I did all of that on live television. And so it was good to be in a place where they were definitely... Look, I think CNBC emphasized on wanting smart people and wanting people who knew the stories, and they didn't care as much about the polish. And I was definitely a, a beneficiary of not um, needing to know what the heck I was doing. <laughs> and you can definitely watch that all play out. And I really give CNBC management, Mark Hoffman, credit for that. He wants people who can talk through the stories and get it. And the content is way more important than any of the flash. And I think that's important for our viewers, too, because they can find somebody who doesn't know the story or who doesn't know what they're talking about a mile away. 
um, what they want is intelligent conversation. And and CNBC's always been true to that. For anyone who's ever seen the movie Broadcast News, mm-hmm. among the great things in that movie, I think for anyone interested in media, that's the first exposure we all got to reading off a teleprompter. Yeah. The scene where William Hurt <laughs> is sitting down with Albert Brooks and is basically and sweat. coaching him through and the whole, you know, punch one thought in every story, punch one, you know, that yeah. sort of thing. And the whole thing with your eyes shifting that I would like, I, that I still remember sitting in the theater and thinking, Oh, that's how that works? Like, oh, that, oh, they're reading off of that? Oh. And then sit on your coat. Make your sit up and sit on your coat so it doesn't make you look hunched. Coming up after the break, Becky Quick shares how she first met the Oracle of Omaha. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. During her career, Becky Quick has interviewed countless CEOs and three U.S. presidents, but she might be best known for her conversations with legendary investor Warren Buffett. How'd you meet Warren Buffett? Uh, the first time I actually met him was, uh, let's see, Judy Dobrinsky, who had come from the New York Times, was the managing editor at CNBC. And we were running around, I think she's the one who sent me, if I'm remembering this correctly. It was the opening of the Wynn Hotel in Las Vegas, and my producer Lacey and I were going out for that. And they said, oh, on your way back, stop in Omaha for the annual meeting of Berkshire Hathaway. And honestly, I didn't know really what Berkshire Hathaway was that much at that point. I I knew of it, but I didn't know really what I was getting myself in for with a shareholder meeting. So we stop and I, you know, I haven't slept because we stayed up all night for the opening of the win. We literally haven't slept. My flight from there, I remember was a Southwest flight and we didn't get on till the end. So I got the, the last row where the seat doesn't recline. And I fell asleep on the guy next to me and was like drooling on his shoulder when we woke up and landed in Omaha. So we were working on no sleep and not nearly enough preparation. And, um, at that point, he would give all the the television reporters who showed up five minutes um, of time on that Saturday to ask whatever questions you could. So I was really excited. Like, my five minutes with Warren Buffett, I'm never going to see him again. And went great, said hello, took a picture for my dad, and I didn't see him again for several years. <laughs> so it was not a huge surprise. But then um, at one point... Um, I reached out to him and we were talking and I'd heard he was going to China and I'd just gone to China with Boone Pickens the year before. And, you know, when he mentioned in the conversation, we kind of got around to China. I said, oh, yeah, can I come with you? He's so nice and uh, was so caught off guard that I don't think he thought of a a polite way to say no (laughs) fast enough. So he said, "Okay." And then I thought, oh, my gosh, what do I talk to Warren Buffett about for 12 hours on this plane ride? Because he was going over with a bunch of guys from the Nebraska Furniture Mart. So it was all of them on the plane. We were hanging out. So wait, it's you, Warren Buffett, and furniture executives. Mm -hmm. The Nebraska Furniture Mart. Yeah, you better come up with stuff to talk about because then it's going to be 12 hours of furniture. Well, you know, they, they were actually really great, but... Warren reads all of these newspapers, and so he's got a thought on every single story in the news. And the good thing was we were able to just kind of chat through, and he makes he, he makes you so comfortable, and he's a normal person and doesn't make you feel stupid. So it, it was a great conversation, and that's kind of where, um, where everything started. And uh, then we started having him on pretty frequently. And I, look, I, he wants to be remembered as a teacher. 
And I think the reason he comes on CNBC so frequently is that he sees it as the platform that he can reach the most students. Um, when he comes on, it, it, the, the very first show he did, the Ask Warren show, was this idea where after he wrote his annual shareholders letter, he wanted people to be able to get a chance to ask him a question. So we did a three-hour show of Warren Buffett, nothing but, and viewers could write in their questions. At that point, email was still the primary way that people were reaching out. So a lot of people emailed in, and we got a huge turnout for that show. It was, it was something like three or 400 in, in the demo was showing up or in the households showing up for that. It was a big deal. And we got a massive amount, uh, thousands and thousands of people who wrote in wanting to, to get a, a chance to ask their question. And it kind of evolved from that. I know there's going to come a day when he's no longer around. And I, I, I dread that day because for a while now, he's been the unofficial reassurer in chief when it comes to the U.S. economy. And I don't know who's going to be next in that role, because it's a, it's a role that I don't even know if we had that before before Buffett came along. And it, and now that we have it, now that we have this person out there who's just sort of like, OK, whether it's, you know, 2008, 2009 and, and the Great Recession and, you know, uh, he was this calming force. And I really don't know who comes next. You know, I, I think there are always going to be larger than life uh, business leaders who can stand up and try and reassure people and speak just beyond their own company. I mean, you think of somebody like Jamie Dimon, who, who to some extent has, has delved in on those things. Um, you, you think of people who are able to look beyond the nitty gritty of what it means directly for their company and look beyond the what it means for this quarter's earnings, what the broader implications are. And I have to say, I've seen a lot of business leaders who have stepped up recently and who have done a pretty good job of laying out, you go to the business roundtable, and every time I'm there, you can talk to uh, a handful of CEOs, many of them from Dow component companies, who will say, here's what's important, here's what matters for the longer term. It's issues that they are trying to remind Washington about too, that just as a great CEO shouldn't be looking just at this quarter's results, a great politician should not be looking just as what this means for until the next time I run. You, you have to have longer term conversations about policy. You have to have goals that transcend uh, just your term. And I think there are always going to be people who stand up and do just that. I, I don't know who that person's going to be. I agree that he has been that person. But I, I do have confidence that there will be people who continue up to, to stand up and say, this is what is really happening. This is what's right, whether it helps me or doesn't help me. And this is what we need America's um, politicians to be thinking about, too. Catch Becky Quick on CNBC Squawk Box every weekday morning at 6 a.m. Eastern. Coming up after the break, a conversation with Mark Cuban. Don't touch that dial. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. This Christmas weekend, we are revisiting two of my favorite conversations from 2022. In November, I got the chance to talk with Mark Cuban. You may know him from the hit reality TV show Shark Tank or as the longtime owner of the Dallas Mavericks. But I caught up with him to talk about his new online pharmacy business 
as well as the ways that incentives are set up in the healthcare industry. Plus, with reports that Jeff Bezos might be interested in buying the Washington Commanders football team, I also asked Mark if he had any advice for Bezos. We also talked about professional pickleball, but I started the conversation by asking about his new business, Cost Plus Drugs. I want to get into the nuts of, and bolts of this business, mm-hmm. but I have to start at a much higher level, Mark. And I guess my, my first question for you is, why would you take this on? Um, you, you can kind of do anything you want in the world of business, and you have decided to attack a garden that is riddled with thorns. Um, there are beautiful <laughs> yeah. flowers in this garden, but there are so many thorns in the prescription drug industry. Why did you decide to take on this challenge? Because I can. Really, though, we're, you know, it's 2022 in the United States of America, and we still have people having to choose between medication food, rent, you know, necessities, and, and that's just wrong. And when you look at any industry and you see that it's opaque, you see that it's dominated by a few key players, you see that there's no trust whatsoever, you see that the pricing is variable depending on where you show up and when, that's just an industry that's ripe to, to be disrupted. And so it really didn't seem like it was a big task, just an expensive task. I mean, it's really straightforward. You know, at costplusdrugs.com, we have a very simple mission to be the low cost provider of medications. And we recognize that medications really aren't our product though. What our product is, is trust. Because if you think about the whole healthcare system and your own personal experiences, you trust your doctor, at least hopefully you do, but anyone or anybody else that you have to write a check to, you don't, you don't trust them at all. You don't know what you're going to spend. You don't know, you know if you're going, there's going to be surprises. You don't know what you're going to get or not get. And if you think about your experience with um, prescriptions, you know, you're, you're at your doctor's and they tell you, okay, you need this medication. And you don't talk about cost. You don't talk about much of anything. You know, the only thing the, the doctor asks you is, what pharmacy do you use? And then when you go to the pharmacy, you really don't know what you're going to pay. You don't, you know, maybe you've got like a phenomenal insurance program where there's no co-pays, but, you know, tens of millions of people are either uninsured, underinsured, or have high deductible or high copay, including, you know, Medicare. And so when you're in that set of circumstances, going to a pharmacy or using mail order for your medications, whatever it may be, is nerve wracking. And, you know, you had, nobody had any control. And so that I saw that, um, and Dr. Ashmyansky, we saw that as an opportunity to, to create a change. You talked at the beginning about how this is an expensive challenge. And one of the expenses I have to believe is building awareness. Cause I was, I was thinking as you were talking about the last time I needed medication, I was thinking about sort of that, that point in the process where the doctor says, and what pharmacy do you use? So how do you and your team go about building awareness for cost plus drugs uh, other than having conversations with people like me? Yeah, other than that, we, we really spend zero on marketing. And obviously I have a big platform on social media and can do interviews anywhere and everywhere, and I do. But the reality is, I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, there's a drug called imatinib, which is for leukemia. And some people literally, you know, get that, you know, what's your pharmacy routine, show up at the pharmacist and imatinib for 30 days was several thousand dollars. 
And we sell it now. We've lowered our price several times. So I think we're in the 41, I forget the exact price, but it's like $41, $51. And so when you have that dramatic of price savings for patients, everybody who has leukemia that uses this drug, uh, you know, they're in the same Facebook groups, they're online talking to each other, they're, you know, they're communicating with their doctors and telling them how much money they save, who in turn tells other patients, hey, have you seen cost plus drugs, you got to check it out. And so word of mouth and being viral is enormous for us. Because, you know, when you got your medication, I, I take um, Levoxetrin, which is the generic of Synthroid for hypothyroidism. And I'm always telling people, look, if, you know, when I hear that they've got it, You've got to go to cost plus drugs because it's going to be $5.60 if you take the same strength as I do versus the $200 I was paying, you know, before a year ago. There are others in this space as well. I think about a business like GoodRx. Um, when I think about sort of the alternatives to the traditional pharmacy system, one of the places my brain goes uh, is to what is the reaction of the the CVS uh, and Walgreens of the world? Um, so, since I'm sure you've heard from, the, like, what has been the reaction from the traditional pharmacy system? I mean, they think we're just tiny and they ignore us, which is great. <laughs> it's exactly what we want them to do. You know, there are three big companies that own major insurance companies that own the big retail pharmacy chains like CVS and Walgreens, et cetera. And they also own these things called pharmacy benefit managers along with many other things. They're literally top 20 in revenue size companies. And so you know, they don't pay a ton of attention to us yet, but it's because they're vertically integrated that we have this opportunity because that enables them to distort prices to play left pocket, right pocket. If I don't make it at the pharmacy, I'll make it at the PBM. If I don't make it at the PBM, I'll make it through our insurance company. And, you know, to, to quote Jeff Bezos, their margin is our opportunity. And so, you know, I don't think they're paying attention to us yet. They know we exist. You know, we've heard them say things to politicians and heard them say things to others. But, you know, we'll, it's, it's going to be very, very difficult as these huge public companies to, to adapt as quickly as we can. Well, you just touched on something that uh, I was trying to get at um, in my opening preamble when I talked about, you know, this is a beautiful garden with a lot of thorns in it. You know, if, if you had come out in January and um, announced that you were starting a business and, and it was a national, you know, chain of, uh, you know, pasta restaurants, uh, there would be some in the restaurant industry who weren't thrilled about the competition, but um, it wouldn't get the attention of Capitol Hill. Going into the prescription drug industry in any way, shape, or form is going to get the attention of the political world. And I'm sure part of what um, some of your competitor, competitors are saying is like, boy, you know, this is, I mean, we've had a good system here that, that really fosters innovation. It's the profits that we make that are able to fuel innovation. And if, you know, if Mark Cuban has his way, it's going to kill innovation. I'm sure you've run into that line of, of reasoning. What is your response? It's the opposite, believe it or not, Chris. Um, so, it bifurcates into there's the manufacturers who, who do the R&D or purchase companies and get the FDA approvals and market the drugs. And then there's the big three companies that own the, the, the insurance companies, pharmacies and PBMs. The big three with the PBMs, et cetera, you know, they're at risk. The manufacturers actually, they see us as a benefit because there's 
the PBMs are asking for rebates in order to be able to make those drugs available to the pharmacies and on the formularies of the insurance companies. And so the manufacturers see us as a plus because, you know, insulin is a, is a good talking point, right? So the manufacturers talk all the time about how their net price, how their net revenues per vial of insulin has dropped continuously over the past you know, half decade to decade, while the price to consumers has unfortunately gone up for, for insulin. So everybody gets upset about the price of insulin, but it's not the manufacturer that typically sets the retail price. It's the PBM, it's these vertically integrated companies that go to the manufacturer and say, look, you have to set the retail price really high because we want you to be able to pay us rebates. And we want to be able to tell some of these people we do negotiations for big self-insured companies, the government that you set the list price at a thousand and we're giving you 40% off. So that's 600 when the reality is, you know, on top of that, the, the insurance company is asking for an additional or PBM is asking for an additional rebate. And so there's all kinds of gamesmanship with the pricing. The manufacturers would love to be able to say, you know what, cost plus drugs, we'll sell it to you at our net price. And you just pass that on, marking it up 15%. Because realize when you go to costplusdrugs.com and you see the drug that you're taking, the Voxithrin, whatever, you know, you're going to see what we pay, you're going to see our cost. You're going to see our markup of 15%. You're going to see that we charge $3 for a pharmacy dispense fee and $5 for shipping. So we're completely transparent. Manufacturers love that. I realize that this business has not yet reached its uh, first birthday. Um, So maybe this is an unfair question, Uh, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What do years two, three, and four look like for cost plus drugs for someone who is trying to get a sense, whether it's a competitor or a potential, uh, you know, an investor who's hoping that someday this is a business that gets spun out into the public markets, other than adding drugs to the platform, do you go into the manufacturing business uh, yourself? Do you start um, lining up uh, more specific and deeper partnerships with the drug makers? Yeah, it's a great question, actually. And to answer your question, one, we're already building a manufacturing plan in Dallas for um, sterile. There, there are all kinds of shortages that occur with drugs, believe it or not. And a lot of times they're very simple drugs, sterile water, Pitocin, things that are supposed to be regularly available, but because the markets aren't very big, the people who manufacture them like to create shortages because they take some of their inventory and sell it at a much higher price. We're working with hospitals to say, okay, what are the most impactful drugs that run into shortages that are generic, not pill, but typically injectable, um, because that's most difficult for hospitals. And we literally are are finishing up a robotics-driven manufacturing site in Dallas where we'll be able to make sterile water. And when we've made as much as we need to for the hospitals um, in four hours, switch over the robots so then we can make Pitocin, make what we need to there four hours later, boom. And in terms of looking forward two or three years, if that market is as big as we think it is and we're able to end shortages for drugs that hospitals need, particularly pediatric drugs, not only are we going to feel really good, make a little bit of money, but we'll be able to expand our capacity, hopefully by 10x, and buy some time so that the robotics get better, cheaper, faster. So that, that's part one. 
Obviously, we'll add more drugs. We'll get more into the branded drug. Right now, we're primarily generics. Um, we've got to deal with Roche um, for diabetic supplies, which are branded. We're going to be adding a um, significant number more. We're working on contracts there. Um, so that's part two. Part three is we're putting together um, an affiliation of independent pharmacies and grocery chains. So that in addition to getting from costplusdrugs.com as mail order, you'll be able to pick it up locally so that, you know, if it's um, penicillin, you know, amoxicillin, let's say, and you need it quickly because you have an infection, you may not be able to wait five to seven days with cost plus drugs via mail order. But, you know, with an affiliation, um, an affiliate network of independent pharmacies, then you'll be able to just go pick it up. And if there's any independent pharmacists out there, go to um, our Twitter page and DM us, and we'd love to work with you. So those are some of the big changes. And then we'll be coming up, we're coming out with a benefit card that you'll be able to, your employer will be able to use so that um, when you have a prescription, you know, your, your insurance will be, your employer will pay less, which will save them money and hopefully eliminate your copay. And you can take that and buy directly from us um, using mail order or from one of our affiliated pharmacies. More with Mark Cuban after the break, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Here's more of my conversation with Mark Cuban. I'm assuming as you were thinking about building this business, um, one of the thoughts that went through your mind beyond sort of the the unfairness of uh, the prescription uh, drug market for consumers was just the the misaligned incentives, how the you know the the PBMs uh, uh, you know don't really have their incentives aligned with the customers. I'm curious, if you see that playing out in other industries, if you, if there are other industries that you look at and you think, well, you know, I'm focused on this in the world of prescription drugs, but but that industry over there, it kind of seems like the same dynamics at play. Yeah, I mean, other parts of healthcare for sure are the low hanging fruit because again, there's so much uncertainty as a patient when you go to an emergency room, when you're in the hospital, when you're having a procedure done. And there are a lot of marketplace solutions that people are offering. You know, hey, if you know you're going to get your hip replaced, just shop it. Or, you know, if you know you're going to have some other operation, you can go to a hospital website and see the cash price versus the insurance price. Like if I get um, a C, I got a um, CT colonoscopy instead of the old Roto-Rooter version. And <laughs> I just went to my went to my hospital website and saw, you know, what the cash price was. And it, and since, you know, it was through the insurance of my company that I self-insure, it was cheaper just to give them a credit card than to do it through our insurance plan. And so there's a lot of misaligned incentives there. And I think where this really, and again, when it comes to hospitals in particular, there is so much administration cost associated with insurance companies, what they call payers, that there are going to be ways to disaggregate the insurance side of the business and make and hopefully cut the cost to run um, emergency rooms and hospitals. But that that's not going to be tomorrow. That's 10 years away, but it's certainly hopefully on our roadmap. You have owned the Dallas Mavericks for more than 20 years. You know what it what it means not just to own a professional uh, sports team in America, but also what it is like to be in a room with 
other owners of other teams. Uh, here in the Washington, D.C. area, it's uh, being widely reported that the local football team might be up for sale and that one of the people who might be interested in buying is someone you mentioned earlier in our conversation, Jeff Bezos. Um, what advice would you have for Jeff Bezos if he becomes one of a few dozen owners of an NFL team? It's not like any other business. You know, Jeff is in the public eye and he knows what it's like to be in the public eye. Even though he's not CEO, let's just talk in reference to Amazon. You know, the Wall Street Journal might do an article every few months, you know, on social media, there'll be something all the time. Um, but the reality is in sports, there's, you know, 17 games plus playoffs in the NFL, but, you know, during the offseason, everybody cares about it. And so it's just a, a continuous drumbeat of interest. And fans are so passionate that, you know, if Amazon had a down quarter and it was struggling, you know, people will accept it and understand it. People are not accepting or understanding in sports. You just bought a pickleball team. Skeptical sports fans um, who have a lot of viewing options, but sell, sell me on pickleball. I guess that's my question. Why, why am I watching professional pickleball? Because it's fun. I mean, you know, if it's table tennis, ping pong on a tennis court. And they're super athletic, and it's a sport that anybody can play, anybody can be okay at, but the level, it's like basketball or softball versus baseball, or, you know, where there's sports that anybody can participate, um, but the pros are at a whole different level. And when you go to watch one or you watch it on TV or streaming, the, the level of athleticism and quickness and hand-eye hand coordination and quickness is insane. So I'm not saying it's going to replace basketball or football, but it's really a fun show. It's really a fun sport to watch in person, and it's not so bad on television. Here's an update on that last topic. Since Mark and I spoke, I have actually seen professional pickleball. I was channel flipping one weekend and stumbled upon it on one of the channels, and he's right. Pickleball is pretty entertaining to watch on TV. Just a reminder that you can hear Motley Fool Money every weekend on radio stations across America and on every podcast app out there. If you're not listening to the podcast yet, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeart, even YouTube. And if you're already listening to our podcast, quick programming note. We have a special bonus episode dropping on Christmas Eve. We're going to be off for Christmas and Boxing Day but back to work on December 27th. And next weekend, it's our 2023 preview show. We'll be talking about industries and trends to watch, stocks to avoid, stocks looking attractive, CEOs on the hot seat, and of course, reckless predictions. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money Radio Show. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey.